Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're getting closer to completing this letter of Paul. And today, believe it or not, we're going to go through this whole chapter. The reason we can do it that way is because Paul repeats himself so much in this particular chapter. And because he does, we need to start off by realizing that the Word of God never repeats itself unless something's really, really, really important. Doesn't need to because it's all important. But when somebody goes to this big of an effect and takes this much time to address one particular problem, um, we can learn great things from it, even if the problem is not the same ones or is not one of the ones that we have. So the apostle spends three chapters in this letter to the Corinthian church, dealing with the problem of how they were using really one particular spiritual gift in their worship services. And in chapter 12, the first of those three chapters, Paul laid out the picture of each local church being one body, with each believer being an indispensable member of that one body. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose, Paul writes in verse 18 of chapter 12. He has appointed in the church various and different gifts to the members, some of which are foundational in nature, but all for mutual edification. In chapter 13, Paul says and shows how Love is superior to spiritual gifts, since love never ends. All the spiritual gifts are given to believers so that they will love and enjoy God forever. All the gifts will pass away when Christ returns because they won't be needed. And some may see sooner because their specific function won't be needed. Love, Paul writes, is the goal of faith and hope and is the still more excellent way that he introduces this chapter with at the end of chapter 12. Now we come to chapter 14 about the misuse of the gift of tongues and the chaos of their worship service, which he deals with here. So if you are able, would you please stand as I read this chapter, 1 Corinthians 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. 
On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are, for, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. 
If any speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and in each turn, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what's said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we'll see whether we meant that thanks to the God. There's nothing in this chapter that's a hot button, is there? Well, first, let's give an overview of what's going on here. That'll help. In verses 1 through 5, basic message is prophecy is superior to tongues. Then in verse 6 through 19... The main idea is that uninterpreted languages, which is a definition of tongues, tongues is a language, are not edifying to the body. And in verses 20 through 25, we see the purpose of tongues. Verses 26 through 36 is orderly worship. And then in verses 37 through 40, there's a final admonition. We'll go through them one at a time in not too much detail or we'll just be repeating ourselves over and over and over and over. Verses 1 through 5, prophecy is superior to tongues. And we have to remember that to these Corinthians, the gift of tongues was the gift that seemingly everyone wanted. And there seemed to be an expectation that everyone should have it. Why? Because it appealed to their self-centeredness and need to be seen and need to be thought well of. And it felt good. It was extraordinary in the sense that you were speaking a language you didn't know and important enough that someone else had to interpret what you were saying. And it looked like you could literally lose yourself to the emotional excitement of doing it. That's a lot. Paul has already said that not everyone could have the same gift. But when you want it as much as these people did, 
it was still an issue. Verse 1 begins with pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, if you were going to guess and you didn't want to look this up, which of those verbs do you think is the strongest one? Pursue or earnestly desire? If you're thinking earnestly desire, you're absolutely wrong. The strongest verb here by far is the word pursue. He just finished chapter 13 on the primary importance of love, which should be the focus, and this church was missing out on this focus. Pursue is much stronger In other words, love should be our primary goal. And he has to go back to this over and over again because they were misusing so many of the spiritual gifts, but especially this one. And like we saw in chapter 12, verses 28 and 31, where Paul previously said, earnestly desire the higher gifts, prophecy is desired because it benefits the whole church more than any other gift. And that's Paul's emphasis here. The New Testament era prophets in the early church were called to proclaim God's word as the Holy Scriptures were in the process of being completed. They were enabled by the Holy Spirit to point back to find Christ in the Old Testament books, which was a great need for the infant church that was now comprised of so many Gentiles and non-Jews. How's that different from an Old Testament prophet? The Old Testament prophet looked forward to Christ's coming, and those prophecies were future-seeking. The New Testament prophets mainly were concerned with looking back to see Christ in the Old Testament. And it seems like they were, like Old Testament prophets, gifted with great boldness to proclaim Christ crucified in the face of fierce persecution and hostility that so many of the Christians in the first century experience. In verses 2 through 5, we see there this continues to provide examples of the difference between tongues and prophecy. And you notice that as we read it a minute ago. The main point is emphasized three times in these four verses. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. And as we said last week, many think the prophecy gift morphed more into a preaching, proclaiming the completed word of God, starting with the new church. He does say in verse 5 that he wishes all could speak in tongues, but he qualifies that wish by again noting that the issue with them is the building up of the body. Next section, the second section, is in verses 6 through 19. 
And this is basically uninterpreted languages or tongues are not edifying to the body. Uninterpreted. What we see here is that in these 14 verses, Paul continues to explain, and honestly it's a lengthy discussion, why what they're doing so misses the point of God giving spiritual gifts to his people. Since tongues without interpretation does not edify, what good would it do the Corinthians if he came speaking in tongues unless they could understand the message? That's the point. And he illustrates this in verses 7 through 8. And for you musicians in here, of which I'm not, he uses a flute, a harp, and a bugle are used here to, to come at the point from another direction. Paul is referring to music that is nothing more than senseless sounds without systematic differences in pitch, in tone, or in time. And if the bugle, that one I get, gives an indistinct sound, remember bugles were used in that day as the alarm system to call the men who would be fighting to protect their communities to battle. So if the bugle gives some indistinct sound, who will be ready for battle? See his point? His point in these illustrations is not the mere sound that's important, but whether the sounds can be understood by those who hear. That's the point. He makes this point over and over and over again. In fact, he makes it at least seven times in different ways just in the first 12 verses of this chapter. So what does Paul say these people should do? Since hopefully they now get that non-understandable language is not profitable for anybody, if their gifts are legitimate, they need someone to interpret so everyone can benefit. So what's the implication of that? The implication is to keep silent if there's no interpretation. Time for a breath. Back in the 60s and the 70s, when the charismatic movement was steamrolling through many churches, there were many investigations as to the legitimacy of these gifts and the people claiming that they were the real thing in the modern era. A well-known one involved sending a person who was fluent in Hebrew into a tongue-speaking church that claimed to be spirit-filled and have them speak in Hebrew. No one there knew that this language that this person was speaking was Hebrew. And when an interpreter immediately stood up in the congregation to interpret this tongue, it wasn't even close to what the guy really said. Legitimate? Absolutely not. And this was true in most 
all of the cases that I heard about in college especially when all this started happening again. Nevertheless, Paul says in verse 19, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now these days, these movements have calmed down tremendously from 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. But they're still around, still claiming to be works of God's Spirit. But folks, what have we learned? We've learned that if there's not an interpreter, they can make no claim of legitimacy in the first place. And if there is, what usually is found is that it's some basic message that's expressed several different ways or actually verses of the Bible that people are just saying they're quoting. A very important principle here that we need to learn, maybe we've already got it a little bit, but we need to rehash it because we're going through this particular chapter, is that spiritual experience, having a spiritual experience, having a supposed spiritual experience is not self-authenticating. What's that mean? It means just because someone claims to have a spiritual experience doesn't necessarily mean that it's the real thing. These gifts can be counterfeited. You cannot defend a spiritual practice in church simply because it's enthralling or it's exciting or everybody seems to be doing it. In other words, spiritual maturity does not have this self-absorption kind of primary focus. The real mark of spiritual growth is concern for other people and what will edify others. Notice, too, that Paul emphasizes the mind and understanding here on the degree of importance. When the church gathers, our focus must end up on the content not just the form. Form without content and experience without understanding does not build others up. That's the bottom line. Paul prefers prophecy and teaching both because both gifts communicate truth. Growth in the church then comes from truth heard and understood and applied. So the church must strive to hear the truth when assembled. Now, obviously, this first century church was out of control. And he's getting ready to deal with some of that right now, even more. Verses 20 through 25, the purpose of tongues. Now, we've already mentioned some of this. But this chapter is the last time we're going to hear about it. So we need to see what he says here. We see again this week that tongue's purpose was as a sign of judgment for Israel, which Paul says in verses 21 and 22. Here's what he says. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues, 
and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Because Israel refused to listen and believe when God spoke plainly to them, the prophet Isaiah said the day would come when God would speak to them in a language they couldn't understand. What's that mean? It means that God was testifying against their rejection of him. Now this didn't just happen once. When the Assyrians came in to the northern part of Israel and Samaria and laid waste to it and hauled people off, and this actually got bigger when they went through the whole country. Did they hear strange tongues? Yes. Assyrians had several different languages. Was it a sign of judgment on the people of God? Yes, of course. They were being carted away. God told them point blank that they were being disciplined. And we know that this is even more important with what he's saying to the Corinthians. Why? Because about 15 years after he wrote this letter, Rome destroyed Jerusalem. Judaism effectively ended. Now, how can we say that when we know there's synagogues all over the place? Well, because what it was based on was destroyed. The temple was destroyed, which means the sacrificial system was destroyed. And the need for a Jewish priesthood was then destroyed. No temple, no sacrificial system, no need for priests. In other words, the requirements of the Old Testament covenant could not be fulfilled. And when that destruction occurred, the need for tongues as a judicial sign to Israel had no further value. Do you see what's implied there? If the gift of tongues is mainly for a testimony of judgment for those who would not believe, and it happened 15 years later, maybe that's the reason why there's no more mention of this gift in the rest of the New Testament after this time. And if it was that important to the church, it would have been mentioned in the later letters. 1 Corinthians was an early letter. The prophesied consequences had come. And we also see another purpose in verse 22 that tongues are, not, are assigned not for believers but for unbelievers. It was assigned specifically for the unbelieving Jews. So why should that gift in the first century dominate a worship service? dominate the desire of the people to have it. It's a sign for unbelievers in that it signifies God's judgment, God's judgment on those who disbelieve. How's that compare with the gift of prophecy that Paul keeps going back to? What about prophecy? 
Well, we see both. We see two things that at first they look opposite. It's first for believers, and the main reason is because it's understandable. And second, in verses 24 and 25, there we see that prophecy fosters belief as unbelievers are convicted of sin and brought to faith. So lastly, the fourth section here, or almost, there's a, an admonition at the end. We see what Paul says about orderly worship. Paul says here that all parts of worship should be conducive to instruction and edification. All parts. Tongues, prophecy, and other gifts were to be practiced. Did you notice this? These are strict regulations he's laying down here. And he says they're for the churches everywhere that still had these gifts operating. All gifts should be done for building up is a good way to sum it. He says that in verse 26. He says how to speak and turn. Can you believe this? Take turns is basically what it meant. He says there's got to be necessary interpreters or don't say anything. Be quiet. And only two or three prophets. And he sums that up in verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. The next paragraph has caused probably more consternation than any of these discussions at least these days, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. If you get up and walk out right now, gals, don't. There's a very good explanation that only took me 40 years to find to explain it, I think, correctly. There's at least four interpretations of what Paul means here. And you can go back through church history and you'll see maybe more than that. But back in chapter 11... Women were encouraged to prophesy and pray in the assembly. So we must look for a clue in our text today that informs us about the nature of the speaking that is prohibited. A clue. Is there a clue in our text that speaks to the nature of the speaking that's prohibited. Because a lot of people want to just say that chapter 11 really wasn't dealing with an assembled, assembled body of believers. That's creative, but it's just really hard to read it and go, well, when are they? During the women's book club or meeting or the prayer meeting? or what? What are they talking about if it's not the assembled church? I don't think that's a really strong argument, but it's been used all the way down through church history. 
I think the clue is in verse 35. Paul says, let them ask their husbands at home. Now we know not all the women were married. So this would infer that single women would do the same thing in a private context or more private context, maybe with the leaders of the church. But there's the clue. Let them ask their husbands at home. And Tom Schreiner explains this the best, I think. It seems fair to infer that some wives were asking disruptive or distracting questions and interrupting the congregational assemblies. Let me just step back. Have y'all ever seen that happen during a worship service? Can you see it happening in the culture in which we live? Maybe that's easier. They weren't free to speak in this way, in this time, especially for a wife's public disagreement with her husband in the ancient world would be viewed as humiliating and dishonoring. And Paul's already dealt with the customs question earlier in this letter. This interpretation does not lead to the conclusion that all all the women were acting disruptive questions in this way. Only some. But you've if you've been around just disruptive people at all, you know that any it doesn't take one or but one or two to completely wreck a gathering or a worship service in this way, which just makes it even worse. But Paul says in his letter, he uses his letter to say that women should not interrupt the service with questions that are meant to basically question authority or show up something going on. These questions could be legitimate, but they could still be distracting Or an old way to say that is off-putting. Or maybe they were insisting that they should be able to ask questions even when they had been informed that they were being disruptive. I know a lot of people aren't satisfied with this, but I think this speaks to the whole tone of this letter, this chapter, and the chaos that was already happening here. And think back to what he said earlier about modesty, dress, the need for this or that. And this church here in Corinth had every kind of person literally almost in the Mediterranean world that was a part of it. Many different ways of looking at things. And it was in terrible shape much like ours in some areas. And Paul has spoken to those things, and this sort of fits with that whole argument. Elsewhere, when Paul writes 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians 11 that I mentioned, uh, Paul appeals to the creation account in Genesis 2 to further explain the distinctions of the complementary roles and headship and submission 
submission, but mainly all those uh, in the category of authority, but under the way he expresses it was headship. You remember back in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3? But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And we went to great lengths at that point to just explain the complementary roles of men and women in general, but especially in the church. That's how I think this is the best way to see how this works here. Disruptive, challenging, distracting questions is what Paul was getting at because he had already said that silence wasn't really the issue in an earlier chapter, complete silence. But there is issues of authority in the church. So, if you had written this letter, would you have to write a paragraph now that says what Paul says here at the end of this chapter? He gives a final admonition. Why? Because he knows there's going to be lots of people in this church that are opposed to the instructions that he just gave. Because this wasn't one or two. This was a handful that, direct, that dealt directly after all this letter. He gets to him finally here about how they could clean up their worship service to focus on God and to serve and love one another instead of trying to get attention for themselves. Let me read this again. Maybe it'll make hit home a little more after the message here. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. We have an opportunity to humbly come before our God after a chapter like this. Your minds are still whirling. It's good to focus now on what Christ ordained. This supper is not appointed primarily for the physical body, which we've talked about down through church history. It changed from a love feast where it was about the food, so much so that the Corinthians had completely almost destroyed the sacrament by how they were so selfish and trying to get the food first, which means the whole point of the meal was lost. This isn't a meal primarily for the physical body, so what's been happening is down through the ages, the amount has turned in from a love feast to something representing a bunch of food or a bunch of drink. It's instituted primarily for our souls. Scripture teaches that we receive true spiritual nourishment 
when we focus on and believe Christ. As we sing, let the words of this hymn refresh and encourage your faith in the Lamb of God and how he did come and was the accepted atoning sacrifice for our sin and will come again as the King of Kings. <laughs>